Yesterday I mentioned St. Joseph and dedicating this retreat to St. Joseph. <clears throat> and I think you'll see why uh, more as the conferences go on. Uh, I'll have this conference now and a conference at 2 o'clock this afternoon, at which point Father Greenwald will take over. And uh, he will give the following four conferences, right in through to Friday. And then I'll pick up where he left off and uh, complete the retreat. So uh, Father Greenwald's four conferences will be inserted uh, in the midst of mine. And yet, I think you'll find they're rather harmonious. The theme is rather harmonious here. Um, but um, one thing I, I thought about the schedule. In the past years, every now and then, especially the men would mention that they felt the schedule was a little choppy. In other words, that there was no block of time that they had without being interrupted. Things were kind of interspersed throughout the day so that uh, they didn't have a great deal of time between one thing and another. So I thought, well, perhaps the best thing to do with regard to the schedule today, excuse me, a lot of congestion here, um, would be um, if we moved the 11.30 rosary to 12 noon. So if you have your schedule, sir, you might make a note of that. Uh, that would mean this conference would end, and then we'd have a visit to the Blessed Sacrament, a personal visit to the Blessed Sacrament. But then you'd be free to have a little more time on your hands, a little more time available to relax, to read, to pray until 12 noon. And that 12 noon rosary would give us plenty of time to pray the joyful mysteries. And during that rosary, I'll uh, also uh, have confessions. So at 12 noon, we'll begin with the Angelus. I'll go hear confessions, uh, and uh, while well, one of you would lead the rosary, I'll, I'll ask someone to do that. And, and uh, then also we'll have lunch then at 12.30. So please make a note of that uh, 12 noon Angelus and rosary in the chapel instead of the 11.30 time. And then you can let me know if that works better for you. <clears throat> now with regard to St. <clears throat> Joseph and St. John the Baptist, we see two individuals, two men at the very, very close of the Old Testament both men charged with great service to the Son of God himself, made man. Uh, we read about St. John the Baptist uh, early on when he is conceived in the womb of his mother, Elizabeth, and much to the amazement of Zachary. Actually, we read about him being prophesied to Zachary, and Zachary comes out of the Holy of Holies uh, mute, because of his, of his doubt, as though he, Zachary, was somehow a, a latter-day Abraham, whose wife Sarah was going to have a child miraculously in an advanced age. Uh, perhaps it was Zachary's humility which made him think that, no, this, this is just not possible. I am no latter-day Abraham. And yet he was struck mute, and when he came out, uh, of the Holy of Holies, everyone knew that something had happened, something uh, quite spectacular had happened behind that curtain. And lo and behold, his wife Elizabeth was with child, and uh, we know that, that even when the angel Gabriel came to our Blessed Mother, 
The angel Gabriel told the Blessed Mother Mary, who had just become the Blessed Mother and conceiving the child Jesus, told her of John the Baptist being conceived by Elizabeth just six months before that visitation of the angel to Mary. So we read of St. John the Baptist very early on. We read about St. Joseph then about the same time. Now, St. Joseph uh, actually was quite a bit older. He was espoused to our Blessed Mother at the time that St. John the Baptist was conceived. So St. Joseph led his life uh, not really in obscurity, but for the fact that he was so silent, but he had some very, very important role to play. As you know, he had the roles to play of protector and guardian, protector and guardian and provider for uh, the Holy Family, which was built around the Son of God. And he did so very valiantly and instantly as soon as he knew what God's will was. And uh, sometime after our Lord's childhood was completed, after our Lord reached his 12th year, you know, you know the account in the gospel, the second joyful mystery tells us about, I should say, the, the, uh, fourth, the fourth joyful mystery tells us about. The, uh, well, actually, I beg your pardon. I'm uh, a little bit uh, uh, weary today for some reason. The fifth joyful mystery, obviously, the, the finding of the child Jesus in the temple. We all know that. Even I know that. The fifth joyful mystery of the rosary, the finding of the child Jesus in the temple, when our Lord reaches his 12th year. And uh, the episode ends with our Lord going back to Nazareth with Joseph and the Blessed Mother and being subject to them and growing in wisdom and age and grace before God and men. And that's the last we hear of St. Joseph, really, while he's alive. Um, later on in life, our Lord will be criticized for being the son of a carpenter, and the question will arise as to where he obtained his learning, because he's nothing but the son of a carpenter, Joseph. Those are the last references to Joseph in sacred scripture. But, you know, um, while St. Joseph passed away sometime during that hidden life of our Lord in Nazareth. Um, St. John the Baptist was to begin his preaching before our Lord even became known. And St. John the Baptist uh, was exactly, you might say, in one way, the opposite of Joseph. Like St. Joseph, he had such an intimate play, role to play in the life of our Lord and the mission of our Lord, <clears throat> that he was himself fatherless. He himself was celibate. He himself dedicated his life to fulfilling God's will. <clears throat> in other words, he was a servant of the fatherhood of God, but in a unique way. And that is not by being a father himself, but by putting himself entirely at the service of the divine fatherhood, by serving the divine son here on earth. But unlike St. Joseph, St. John the Baptist is known for his voice. Whereas St. Joseph said nothing that was quoted in sacred scripture, St. John the Baptist described himself as a voice crying in the wilderness. And he raised his voice very boldly, so, so boldly and so loudly 
did St. John the Baptist speak of the things to come, and especially the Messiah, the Redeemer to come, and then point out that he was standing there even among them at that moment, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees heard his voice reverberating in Jerusalem, and they always kept the tabs on what was going on, especially in Safar, as it might affect them and their power. And so they sent uh, emissaries to the Jordan River to hear John speak. And at first they came, in a sense, as spies, but then they came and they confronted John, uh, even presenting themselves perhaps for baptism. But St. John the Baptist realized that his baptism of repentance wasn't for them because they weren't repentant. And he confronted them by saying to them, O brood of vipers, who has showed you how to flee from the wrath to come? That's how St. John the Baptist greeted the Pharisees and the Sadducees when they impudently presented themselves for a baptism of repentance, which was a lie in their parts. But, you know, that idea of the wrath to come is very important. Uh, St. John the Baptist spoke of that to those who came to him, and uh, there are those who came to him to receive the baptism of repentance. Of course, St. John the Baptist could not grant a baptism of forgiveness. Only our Lord could do that. But the first step was to get people to repent. And so that's what St. John the Baptist was there to do. He was preparing the way for our Lord by moving the souls of his people to repent of their sins. And uh, then they could receive the Messiah who had actually come to forgive them. Now, this idea of the wrath to come had different effects, of course, on different people. There were those who were contrite, as I mentioned, and repentant, and those who were not very obstinate, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But the idea of the wrath to come is something that echoes down the centuries and could come to us today, especially in this world today, which has so completely forgotten God, and not only forgotten him, but even rejected him. As a matter of fact, uh, St. Augustine even remarked, St. Augustine even remarked, great is already the punishment of sin when the fear of the future divine judgment is lost. I'll repeat that, actually. Great is already the punishment of sin when the fear of the future divine judgment is lost. And if there's anything lost today, it is certainly that fear of the Lord. So it's a good idea for us to stop and uh, to listen to the voices of not only the saints, but the voices that we hear speaking to us by divine revelation that is inspired by the Holy Ghost and sacred scripture. And we read in St. Matthew chapter 24, and then they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with much power and majesty. And when they, that is the tribes of the earth, of mankind, see the Son of Man coming, the clouds of heaven, they seem to indicate the myriad of angels that surround him. When they see our Lord coming with great power and majesty, they will recognize one whom they rejected, whom they scorned. And that's why they will fear and moan in regret and in terror. 
St. Alphonsus Liguori remarks upon that day, he says, This day shall begin with fire from heaven, which will burn the earth, all men then living, and all things upon the earth. All shall become one heap of ashes. And so St. Alphonsus Liguori describes this day of judgment. <clears throat> and we know that the earth will be destroyed. We know it will not be destroyed by water. God promised that. But St. Peter, in his epistles, speak about the earth being destroyed by fire. And here's St. Alphonsus Liguori, uh, referring to that, uh, talks about the entire earth being incinerated, actually. Even the Old Testament prophet Joel, chapter 2, speaks of this. Before the face, therefore, of a, a devouring fire, and after it a burning flame, the land before it, as it were, a garden of pleasure, and after it the wilderness of a desert. Neither is there anyone that can escape it. The prophet Joel, the Old Testament. Now I mentioned St. Peter, and uh, this is from his second epistle. And the earth and the works which are in it shall be burnt up. Again, he indicates that this world as it is will be will be incinerated. Now, you think about um, the gravity of that, the, the magnitude of that fire, that consuming fire, which will consume the entire earth. It will destroy all that we have built. As a matter of fact, we know that in order to be saved body and soul, the soul has to be regenerated in grace, and the body must be destroyed. That is death, the separation of the body from the soul. And we see what becomes of the body without the soul. We see the body which can do all kinds of amazing things. You know, we think about these little children who become excellent gymnasts. And we wonder how is it possible that they can do these things. We hear, uh, again, even our little children uh, singing beautifully, powerfully. We see uh, how fast we can run uh, and we, how strong we can get. And so we see the body doing amazing things. Take away the soul and the body is nothing but a heap of moldering, moldering matter. And just returning to the uh, chemicals of which it is made, it's just disintegrating. And what this really shows is the power of the soul, the life that the soul imparts to mere carbon and oxygen and hydrogen and silicon and so on. <clears throat> These are powers not natural to the, <clears throat> to the um, elements of the earth unless God himself created the soul and united the soul and a physical body to a human soul. So it tells us the magnificence of the soul, the power of the soul, and it also speaks of the destiny of the soul too. But just as the, the body itself of each and every one of us is going to have to itself, in a sense, be incinerated by time, by corruption, so the entire world will have to be purified. The entire world will have to be reduced to ashes, even as the individual human body, the entire sinful world will have to be reduced to ashes and then be recreated by God and be recreated, even as the human body in resurrection will be recreated by God. So the entire world of sin has to be recreated by God after it is reduced to ash 
So it shouldn't surprise us to read in sacred scripture and the writings of the saints about that event. We should take it very seriously. Why? Because it is in our future. It, it is definitely in our future. And every single one of us here is going to see this happen. We're all going to be part of this. It's just a matter of time. And they know how time inexorably moves forward. Inevitably, this is coming. We will see it. There will be those who will be shocked and those who will not be shocked by it. There will be those who will be, whose faith will be confirmed by it. I pray that we're among those whose faith is confirmed by it. And that's what this retreat is all about. How is it possible that we can actually find comfort and courage in these things? where others will be faint of heart and, and fainting away for fear of what is coming upon the whole world, as the scripture says. Now, St. Jerome, St. Jerome, the father and doctor of the church, said, as often as I consider the day of judgment, I tremble. Whenever I eat or drink or whatever else I do, that terrible trumpet appears to sound in my ears. Arise, ye dead, and come to judgment. So here's a man who was very mindful of these events here. <clears throat> he wasn't being grim. He wasn't being dour. He was really being a realist. And he saw the way that life was going in his day. Already then, just a matter of a generation after Constantine, the church receiving her liberty, and still there were those who were imprisoned and tortured for the faith under Diocletian, still walking the earth. The clergy at that time had already started to become worldly. <clears throat> and he was lamenting that. He actually fled that worldliness and went down into the catacombs and spent <clears throat> time down there among the, among the sainted martyrs <clears throat> because he found the growing worldliness of the church now that it had been liberated, as it were, by Constantine, <clears throat> he found that worldliness appalling and actually somewhat disturbing, distressing. <clears throat> so he, he thought about the judgment. He was very mindful of that. And he was trying to make people aware of it so they wouldn't just become totally dissipated. And yet his voice often fell on deaf ears. Uh, we read again from St. Alphonsus Maria Liguori about this. At the sound of that trumpet, the souls of the blessed shall descend from heaven to be united to the bodies with which they served God on earth, and the unhappy souls of the damned shall come up from hell to take possession again of those bodies with which they have offended God. The damned shall appear deformed and blackened like so many firebrands of hell, but the just shall shine as the sun. Oh, how great shall then be the happiness of those who have mortified their bodies by works of penance. We may estimate their felicity from the words addressed by St. Peter of Alcantara after death to St. Therese. This is St. Therese of Avila. Oh, happy penance which merited for me such glory. Again, St. Alphonsus Maria Liguori continues, After their resurrection, they shall be summoned by the angels to appear in the valley of Josephat. And so we read in St. Matthew chapter 13, the angels shall go out and shall separate the wicked from among the just. So the angels will be kind of an advanced guard to separate the wicked from among the just here on earth. The souls of the just 
from heaven will come, the souls of the damned from hell will come, and here on earth the angels will separate the just from the wicked. And uh, we read also, the brother shall be separated from the brother, the husband from his wife, the son from the father, and so on. But behold, the heavens are open, the angels come to be present at the general judgment, carrying, as St. Thomas says, the sign of the cross and of the other instruments of the passion of the Redeemer. So we know that the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the, in the sky for all to see. And here St. Alphonsus Liguori says, the angels will come, they will have roles to play among us. They will separate the good from the bad, and they will bring with them the sign of the cross of our Lord and other instruments of the passion of the Redeemer. And St. Matthew, again, chapter 24, says, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. Sinners shall weep at the sign of the cross, for as St. John Chrysostom says, the nails will complain of them. The nails, even the very nails which pierced our Lord's hands and feet, will speak condemnation against those who have rejected Christ. The wounds and the cross of Jesus Christ will speak against them, will testify against them, all the wicked. These are the ones who will give testimony against them. And uh, again, at, at that time we read that to lie hidden will be impossible. There will be nowhere to hide. To appear however, will be intolerable. So to lie hidden is impossible, according to St. Anselm. St. Anselm, again, father and doctor of the church, to lie hidden will be impossible, but to appear will be intolerable for those who are enemies of God. And St. Jerome himself says, it would be easier for the damned to bear the torments of hell than the presence of the Lord. So to stand in the presence of God will be more horrible and greater suffering for those who are to be damned than to be in hell. It's almost as though <clears throat> that to stand there before our Lord in judgment will be the worst possible torment they could endure to face him. <clears throat> and as though going to hell is something of a mercy for them, where they can be buried in hell away from him. So they think. But a terrible thing, what an awful thing to experience. But it will happen. We will see it happen. Right? And that's why the, the wicked will say, as we read in the Apocalypse, chapter 6, and they say to the mountains and the rocks, fall upon us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth upon the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath is come. Who shall be able to stand? <coughs> Again, the voice of St. John the Baptist still echoes, even in the book of the Apocalypse. And who hath showed you how to flee from the wrath to come? Well, then St. Alphonsus Liguori says that the books of conscience are opened and the judgment begins. Now there's an interesting slant. The book of conscience will be opened. 
Now we read about the book of life here. It talks about the judgment opening the book of conscience, as though each one of us has a kind of diary in which our conscience is written, and it will be opened, and God will manifest there in our consciences the facts of life, the reality of our lives, what we've done with our lives, whether we've been faithful to him or unfaithful to him. The books of conscience are opened. Imagine if our consciences were laid open even now <laughs> in all of their details. Um, imagine that kind of judgment going on, even this moment, if our consciences were to be opened as an open book for all to see. What, what that would mean? Well, something to think about, because the moment will come, it will happen. Before all mankind, in fact, it will happen. And so um, we read on about the, this judgment in progress. St. Luke chapter 8, our Lord says, For there is not anything secret that shall not be made manifest, nor hidden that shall not be known, and come abroad, that has been made manifest to all. These are the words of our Lord, talking about what will happen then as he sits in judgment of mankind. St. Uh, Alphonsus Maria Liguori, of course, said a great deal about this, and he also added, a judgment terrible to sinners, he says, truly, a judgment terrible for sinners, but desirable and sweet to the just. Now there's another angle <clears throat> which hasn't appeared yet. We've heard about how terrible it will be to face the just judge. But Saint, this is actually St. John Chrysostom, I beg your pardon. St. John Chrysostom says these words, a judgment terrible to sinners, but desirable and sweet to the just. St. John Chrysostom, Patriarch of Constantinople, in the 5th century, in the 400s, speaks of this. Uh, actually, uh, late 300s to early 400s, St. John Chrysostom. So he talks about the, the wicked suffering horribly, but the just finding it all desirable and sweet. How is it possible? <laughs> Well, again, St. Alphonsus Liguori adds this, The last judgment shall fill sinners with terror, but will be a source of joy and sweetness to the elect. For the Lord will give them praise to each one according to his works. So again, St. John Chrysostom and St. Alphonsus Maria Liguori Separated by 1,200 years or so, maybe a little more, they express the same, same thought, that as terrible as this great judgment will be to those of uh, the wicked, so it will be as, rejoice, as, as joyful, as joyful for the just as it is horrible for the sinner. It's something to think about. They seem to say that there will be as much joy among the just as there will be lamentation among the, among the unjust at this, at, the, uh, at this judgment. 
And there we read the book of wisdom, the words of the book of wisdom, that those who persecuted the just, the unjust persecuting the souls of the just, will say, we fools esteemed their life madness and their end without honor. Behold, how they are now numbered among the children of God and their lot is among the saints. So we see this dramatic reversal in the fortunes, as they say here. And the prophet Daniel from the Old Testament also describes it. And that the kingdom and power and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven may be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all kings shall serve him and shall obey him. So you know what we're reading about here? We're actually reading about how this, this last judgment is going to be the fulfillment of the Beatitudes. It's simply the fulfillment of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. And here we find that at this last judgment, indeed, blessed are the just. Blessed are they. And therefore they will rejoice in the, in the judgment of God, in the justice of God. They will also see at the same time the very mercy of God in his justice. And yes, they will rejoice. So as terrible and as terrifying as the thought is for each and every one of us, if we're going to think like the saints, we've got to begin to understand what they understood. And the question is, how did they come to understand it? How could they begin to think of these things in such a way that they would be the fulfillment of all the good promises that God gave to those who are faithful to him, such that the, the blessedness promised in the Beatitudes, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, would be actually come to pass at this general judgment, which all men are fear except the saints. And where do we want to be there? Where do we want to be? Which, which group do we want to be numbered in? And how do we get there? And how do we understand things the way they understood them? So that we can stand among them at that time. And finally, again, St. Alphonsus Liguori commenting on this says, After this sentence, the wicked shall, according to St. Ephraim, be compelled to take leave forever of their relatives, of paradise, of the saints, and of Mary, the Divine Mother. Farewell, ye just, farewell, O cross, farewell, O paradise, farewell, fathers and mother, brothers, we shall never see you again. Farewell, O Mary, Mother of God. Then a great pit shall open in the middle of the valley, the valley of Josephat. The unhappy damned shall be cast into it and shall see those doors shut, which shall never again open. O accursed sin, to what a miserable end will you one day conduct so many souls redeemed by the wood of Jesus Christ? O unhappy souls, for whom is prepared such a melancholy end? But brethren, have confidence. Jesus Christ is now a father and not a judge. He is ready to pardon all who repent. Let us then instantly ask pardon from him. Interesting statement of St. Alphonsus Liguori. Jesus Christ is now a father and not a judge, he says. This is what he says to the blessed, but he, who he calls the brethren. 
He says to have confidence because Jesus Christ is now a father and not a judge. Well, we know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, not the Divine Father. We, we hear the words of the Hallelujah chorus and sung at Christmas time, and we hear the Protestant translation in the King James Version of the Bible when it refers to Jesus Christ as the everlasting Father. That is a heresy. He is a distinct person from the Father. He is the only begotten Son. He is not the everlasting Father, a title reserved to God the Father, who is the Father of the Son, Jesus Christ, the divine Word. But in what sense is Jesus Christ a Father that St. Alphonsus Liguori would refer to him this way? Well, <clears throat> go to, of all places, Psalm 21. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? These are the words of Jesus on the cross, Psalm 21. Sounds like a cry of almost despair. These are the middle words of the seven words that our Lord spoke upon the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Actually, the psalm begins, my God, my God, why uh, look upon me? And why hast thou forsaken me? But they were not words of despair at all. They were merely meant to indicate to you and me the depth of the sufferings of our Lord. And that's going to be the subject of a, of a conference here very soon in which we actually explore, as they like to say these days, to explore, investigate the passions of our Lord so we can understand him, so we can understand his sacred heart, so we can understand what the saints understood about our Lord. And um, if you keep reading that psalm, Psalm 21, it goes on for quite some time, actually. You find that, oh, about the first uh, third to a half is the account of the passion and death of our Lord. But this psalm was inspired in David's mind, and David spoke it and sung this psalm a thousand years before our Lord died on the cross. And so it was a prophecy, the Psalm 21. <clears throat> but, you know, the latter part of the psalm is a psalm of rejoicing, a psalm of triumph. The psalm that begins, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, ends with a hymn of triumph. And it is precisely through the cross we read of this triumph of God. And it refers, the voice is the voice of Jesus Christ, speaking in that psalm, as it did from the cross. And it refers to our Lord as the Father of the world to come. That's how he is a father. He's the father of the souls he has begotten by grace. It's as though our Lord gave birth to us when his heart was opened on the cross, and out came the blood and the water of the sacraments, the water of baptism and the blood of the Eucharist. It's as though you and I were born there, as the church was born there. The saints were born there. And it is Our Lady who joined our Lord there in kind of birth pangs for you and me. And so in that sense, our Lord has delivered us, but delivered us in a different sense. We talk about delivering a child, so our Lord has delivered us. And in a sense, now he also is a father but his fatherhood 
extends over us by grace, that he, he also has, has given birth to us on that cross. So he is a father and not a judge. We have to understand his fatherly heart. You remember when Philip said at the Last Supper, O Lord, show us the Father, and our Lord expressed astonishment at Philip, saying, Philip, have you been with me for so long and you don't know me? Do you not know that he who sees me sees the Father? And so the fatherhood of the eternal Father is now reflected in the divine Son and his own sacred heart in this wonderful way. So for the wicked and the evil, he will be their judge because they rejected him as their Lord and their Savior. And they rejected him as the father of the grace that was born of the cross. They rejected him. And so for them, he will be their judge. But for those who love him and are faithful to him, he will be there as a father. He will be as a father to them. And St. Alphonsus Liguori says he is ready to pardon all who repent. Let us then instantly ask pardon from him. So here you have a little treatment of the uh, some of the relevant sections from sacred scripture and statements of the saints about the judgment, the general judgment, the great judgment of all mankind. There are those who even ask, well, what, why do we need that? After all, if we're going to go for our particular judgment when we die, I mean, isn't that enough for us? And the answer, obviously, is no. And the answer is given by God that that is not enough. Why? Well, because we have not only the matter of God's judgment of each and every one of us individually, uh, we have the judgment of God over all mankind, every single decision of every human being who ever lived in, in all of history we will see not only God's perfect justice and mercy with regard to ourselves individually, personally, but we will actually be allowed to see the absolute perfection of God's justice and mercy to every single human soul. And uh, that, that will be quite spectacular, heaven knows, right? So when we talk about the saints' fear of judgment, as St. Jerome speaks of it, somehow their fear of judgment was overcome by something greater. Now you think about the saints' fear of judgment. Who has a better understanding of the justice of God than his saints? <clears throat> so who has a greater respect for, who has a greater fear of the Lord than the saints? And the answer is nobody. <clears throat> nobody has a greater fear of the Lord than the saints themselves. They understood God's justice in a surpassing way that the wicked will not even allow themselves to think about. I mean, when Father Junipero Serra was approaching his death after all of the sacrifices that he'd made and all the labors he'd undertaken for souls, he was very, very concerned. He had an, an amazing understanding of the justice of God, and he feared that justice. Because as the saints become saintlier, they become more and more impressed with the holiness of God and the lowliness of man, and especially themselves. They really began to see 
how their efforts, their works, were really unworthy of the holiness of God. And so you might say the gap between them and God seemed to grow and grow exponentially as they became holier and holier. In a sense, they seemed to be receding from the holiness of God only because they began to see the holiness of God more and more clearly and respect it more and be more in awe of it. So the wicked fancy themselves to be God, but the saints see themselves very differently. And as they grow and appreciate more and more the goodness of God and his holiness, they see what they have to offer God in terms of love and service as being so far from what God deserves. So far from becoming holier and holier in their own eyes, they become lowlier and lowlier in their eyes. So no one can match the saints for a fear of God. But remember, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom too. And so there's something in the saints that enabled them to actually even overcome their fear of the Lord, their fear of God, to have confidence and even rejoice at the idea of judgment and, and going and seeing our Lord. What was it? What was it in them, and what must it be in you and me that enables us to read of these things, think of these things, even meditating upon these things, and to fear, as St. Jerome did, but there's something more, something more that we need to understand that the saints understood. What was it, what was it that gave them such confidence in the face of a most perfect understanding of the just, justice of God's judgment? And was it not exactly what St. Alphonsus de Gori says, that they saw God more and more as Father, as Father. They saw him more and more as a loving Father. And this is something unique to the saints, that they see God more and more as a loving Father. And that overcomes all the terrors of the justice. That's how it was with St. Junipero Serra. After his brief time in which he was filled with terror at the thought of God's judgment, he was given great peace. He was given great, great peace of soul. To have confidence in the mercy of God and not to be training and focusing his attention on the unworthiness of his own love and his own service to God, but on the goodness of God. This is what the saints came to do. This is what they came to know. Now, um, you know, the first commandment is, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt not have strange gods before me. Like strange expression, strange gods. Makes us wonder. In the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord ends toward the conclusion of St. Matthew chapter 7. By talking about many will say to him in that day of judgment, did we not prophesy in thy name? Did we not heal the sick in thy name? And so on and so forth. And our Lord said, I will say unto them, I assure you, I never knew you. Amen, I say unto thee, I never knew thee. I never knew thee. Talk about being a stranger, a stranger to God. And the question is, is God a stranger to us? 
Are we a stranger, strangers to God, such that he never knew us? How is it possible? Is God a stranger to you? I mean, after all, you know of God by faith. Some say that and faith enables us to know of God. That theology even allows us to know about God. So theology is the application of our intelligence to divine revelation. By divine revelation, we know of God. Theology enables us to know more about him. But how do we know God himself? There's a difference between knowing of God and there's a difference between knowing about God. <clears throat> and they are both different from knowing God. Knowing God himself. How is it possible to know God himself and not be a stranger to God? Our Lord tells us to ask and to seek and to knock, he says, right? Our Lord said, ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you. Perhaps this knowing of God and knowing about God and knowing God himself can be put in those terms of asking and seeking and finally knocking because there's a pr progression in the asking and the seeking and the knocking. There's a progression there of getting closer and closer and closer until we're finally at God's own doorstep and we're knocking there for him to open and reveal himself to us. I thought he said it was kind of interesting in English that ask and seek and knock those three words begin with A-S-K, and so it's easy to remember, ask and seek and knock. But it's as though in asking, uh, our, our Lord hears that prayer and enables us to know of him. And seeking, he enables us to find him. But knocking, after we found him, now we want to be admitted into his own place of residence. We want to be united with him there. And so there is a progression here. And the question is, how did the saints get to know God so that even being aware of his justice, they had such childlike, beautiful confidence and even rejoiced at the idea to see him even in judgment. They overcame a terrible dread because of something that they had gained in life, a knowledge of God, how did they get there? And how do we get there with them? Well, if I may backtrack just a little bit, maybe St. Augustine can help us. Uh, actually, we read in the Gospels a constant theme of our Lord's preaching, that is the four last things, it's true. And the imitation of Christ says, to many the saying, deny thyself, take up thy cross and follow me, seems hard. But it will be much harder to hear that final word, depart from me, ye accursed ones, into everlasting fire. St. Matthew chapter 25. And so St. Jerome does say, as often as I consider the day of judgment, I tremble. St. Augustine says, that nothing removed him from earthly thoughts as perfectly as the fear of judgment. All he had to do, St. Augustine says, is think of the judgment, and he would not succumb to earthly, earthly temptations. St. Benedict, in his rule, says, 
that this knowledge of the judgment of God and his justice is the very first step in humility. He says the first step then of humility is of one, if one set the fear of God always before his eyes and altogether avoid forgetfulness and be always mindful of everything that God has ordered and always ponder over life eternal, which is prepared for those that fear God, and how hell will consume for their sins such as despise God. And if he keep himself at all times from sins and faults alike of thought, of the tongue, of the eye, of the hand, of the foot, or of self-will, and moreover hasten to cut away the desires of the flesh. So he says that the beginning of humility is to be found in the fear of God. Well, doesn't that correspond to exactly what the sacred scriptures tell us? that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is the first of the gifts of the Holy Ghost. That's where it all begins. It is the first act of respect for God, to respect his judgment, to respect his justice. Even those who don't love him can at least know him enough to fear justice. Even that is the beginning of respect for God. Just the beginning, but it's a beginning. <laughs> a necessary beginning, an indispensable beginning to make any progress, to have a certain fear of the Lord, the first gift of the Holy Ghost. This is what we're talking about here. The saints understood this. Therefore, they did have a certain fear of the Lord. It was where they began with a certain respect for God. And so we read that the fear of judgment is the way of the saints. It's the first step of the saints towards sanctity. <clears throat> And our Lord tells us in St. Matthew chapter 7, again, the end of this Sermon on the Mount, as I told you, not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father who is in heaven, he shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and cast out devils in thy name and done many miracles in thy name? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. So our Lord makes it very clear that just calling upon him as Lord is not adequate. Why would they profess with their mouth that he's their Lord when in fact by their deeds they deny that he is their Lord? And so it is actually obedience to the will of God that determines whether or not he is their Lord or they reject him. And so when we come down to... Uh, actually applying the knowledge of the saints, we find that their fear of the Lord prompted them to obey the commandments of God. And uh, the only thing that matters at the judgment is faith that worketh by charity. This is from the epistle of St. Paul to the Galatians, chapter 5, verse 6. Faith that worketh by charity. Okay, Living faith, as St. James the Apostle says. Living faith. <clears throat> If your faith does not produce charity, your faith is dead. And St. Augustine tells us that the demon will stand before God and say of the sinner, now we're talking about the particular judgment, most just God, declare him to be mine who was unwilling to be yours. Declare him to be mine who was unwilling to be thine. And so, what our Lord tells us in St. Matthew is to bring forth fruit worthy of penance. That is to say, have faith that works by charity. 
St. Alphonsus Liguori lamented in his day, Christians, he will say at judgment, if the graces which I have bestowed on you had been given to the Turks or to the pagans, they would have done penance for their sins, but you have ceased to sin only with your death. Only death is the end of your sins. Uh, St. Alphonsus referred these words to the Christians of his own day. So you see, he was indeed fearful for their salvation. So the Holy Ghost tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is from Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. And if we have the fear of the Lord, then we can't fear as pagans any longer. Because for us, for us, fear of the Lord requires faith. We start with faith, you see. Whereas pagans fear, they fear the things of the world, and we must not fear as they fear. And so uh, we read that we must not fear as the pagans fear. The Lord takes pleasure in those that fear him and in them that hope in his mercy. Psalm 146. And again, his mercy is from generation unto generations to them that fear him. The New Testament, St. Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. His mercy is from generation unto generations to them that fear him. The words of our Blessed Mother. And we read that there is no prayer that... Per perhaps as perfectly expresses the Catholic teaching of this, as the Dies Irae, the Day of Wrath, this hymn, the sequence that is sung at the Requiem Mass for the deceased. We read about our Lord Jesus Christ and his, his judgment and the fear that mankind has to be judged, but Time and time again, there's expressed in the Dies Irae, as mournful as it sounds, the beautiful hope that we have in God, the saints express this so beautifully. Recordare Jesu pie, quod sum causa tue vie, ne me perdon die. Remember, O Lord Jesus Christ, that I was the cause of thy way here on earth. Suffer me not to be lost on that day. To plead to our Lord in his mercy, right? A prayer of repentance, but also hopeful repentance from the ashes, even. So for the contrite, for those who fear the Lord and are contrite for their sins, there is mercy. And that is the wonderful thing. There is mercy for the contrite. There is mercy for the repentant sinner. And no one appreciated that so much as the saints themselves. That takes us to the question of the particular judgment. And there St. Augustine has some very interesting things to say, I think. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on that. That'll be the next conference at 2 o'clock. But I thought it'd be very good to, to uh, hear what St. Augustine has to say in the book, The City of God. Some of it probably will surprise you. And um, also uh, various other saints and St. John Vianney. And it's remarkable how hopeful they are. And you see in their writings how it is possible to overcome a fear of the Lord that the pagans have 
by faith and by hope and by charity, and actually to long for that triumph of Christ and be a part of it. And the testimony of the saints is a great comfort to us today and encouraging. We need to hear what they have to say, and that's what will be the next conference. So let's pray and be on our way. It's already 11 o'clock, so uh, we have until noon now for the rosary.